Today, we finally, after two weeks, we move forward in the creed. Yay, we get some more words to memorize. We started off with the phrases I be- with phrase, I believe, and today we're going to get to add two more words, okay? The words are in God. In God. So now we have four words. I believe in God. I'll say it and then you say it if you want to do the repeating the creed thing. I believe in God. Creed starts, I believe in God. We've been talking about what it means to be a human, what it even means to believe, but now we've got to move forward in this story. We ended with the book of Genesis with this promise made to this family, and now we're going to pick it up today, this week, with the book of Exodus. Major, major, major plot developments. One of the key questions that philosophers ask, indeed one of the key philosophical questions, since the beginning of philosophy, since the pre-Socratic philosophers back in the 6th century BC in Greece, and even on through major 20th century voices like Martin Heidegger and Ludwig Wittgenstein also engage with this question. The question being, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there anything at all? Maybe a question like that is even nonsensical because if there was always something, then there's not something rather than nothing. But you could still ask it, you know, why was there never nothing? We were once a nothing as people, and then we were created and born. Where were we before we were, and why are we here, uh, you know? And people have come up with all kinds of bizarre answers to this, scientific answers, metaphysical answers. Most people, though, throughout all of history, and especially ancient people, had a really specific answer to that question, why is there something rather than nothing? And it had something to do with a god, or gods, maybe in the plural, that deity or deities were responsible for there being something rather than nothing. But this very concept of a god raises huge questions, like what should a god be like? How many gods should there be? I mean, if you were just to do abstract reasoning, just purely abstract, no personal experience, no community, just like what should a god be? What should a god be like? Should a god be all-powerful or limited in some way? Should you have many different gods all in charge of like different spheres of activity? Should you have one god kind of to rule them all, but then maybe some like subordinate lesser gods? It's hard to know in the abstract. Probably most of us are familiar with what we would call a monotheistic system. Monotheism means one deity. Um, But indeed, in the ancient world, many of the world's worshipers uh, worshiped in a system that had many different deities. Deities that could harm you, deities that could help you, deities that were in charge, deities that weren't always in charge. If we take the corollary to this question and bring it down to the level of our Bible reading for this week, to the book of Exodus, we might wanna ask it this way. Why is, why is Israel a nation rather than not? How does Israel become a people? How will Israel get attached to God? And what does, what does that word God mean to Israel? And it's an appropriate question to ask for the book of Exodus because in the book of Exodus, Israel as a group, and can we really call them Israel yet? Not quite. Israel's a nation and they're not yet a nation. Plot spoiler, that's coming later. They'll become a nation. Right now, we could maybe just call them the Hebrews or the Hebrew slaves or something like that. For that is where we find our people, right? As we begin the book of Exodus. They are down in Egypt. So let's get into the book itself and see what kind of theological and philosophical and personal and moral and spiritual questions this book raises for us. God had promised the people, as we remember from Genesis, that they would get two things. Do you remember the two things that God was was promising Abraham? Land and kids. Land and kids. And this all comes by way of of a covenant, a covenant. You can learn a little Hebrew for today, just for fun. This word for covenant in Hebrew is 
Berit, you want to say that? I'll say it, then you say it. And then you can say that you spoke Hebrew in class. Berit. Berit. It means a covenant, a kind of a deal. In fact, the language in Hebrew for, for making a covenant, the verb is karat. Cutting a covenant. Literally cutting it. Why cutting it? Well, because maybe covenants were often ratified or sealed in this ancient world of belief by cutting an animal. In fact, in Genesis 15, if you remember, there was this weird thing that Abraham did where he kind of cut an animal in two pieces and there was some mystical torchlight that went between the pieces. This is covenant. It's bloody. It's visceral. It's a deal between two parties. It's not just one-sided. Usually covenants in this setting are not just like, I'm going to do all this stuff and you just do nothing. It's, I'm going to do this stuff and you're going to do stuff. So it's always two-sided. Both, both parties are getting something out of the deal. So the humans, particularly starting with Abraham and his family, or a- Abram and Sarai, later Abraham and Sarah, are getting something. They're getting land, which they don't have. They left their home. They're getting kids that they don't have because they can't have the kids, okay? at least not at first. But this covenant is in peril by the time we get to Exodus. By the time we were even to the Joseph story, we know that they had descended down into Egypt. That's the wrong land, right? You're in the wrong land. You can't have the land. That was not the geographic territory that God had promised. God did not promise um, the ancestors that they would receive Egypt as their inheritance. It was only the specific little strip of land, the land that we today know basically more or less as Israel. So what are they doing in Egypt? Okay. Oh, they're there. But the story gets actually worse because not only are they in the wrong land, but they get enslaved down there. And when they're enslaved by this individual named Pharaoh, an unnamed individual, we'll come back to this problem in in a bit, they not only have the problem that they're in the wrong land, and if you're slaves and you can't leave, how are they going to get their land? But they have another problem too. In a sense, you could say they're serving as slaves under the wrong God. Pharaoh, in the Egyptian religious system throughout its history, was basically considered a god was a kind of incarnation, you might say, or a kind of embodiment of qualities of God's or of divine power himself. So if Pharaoh is your master and you're serving Pharaoh, you're serving Pharaoh in a sense within their system as a God. This will have implications for what the Lord, the Hebrews God, will want to do with Israel and want to do to Pharaoh once the moment is right. Now the kids thing, however, the kids, they're doing fine with the kids apparently. And here we open to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. We find out in Exodus 1, 7, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay. So the kids thing, they're having no problem with the kids. Very fertile in in their land. But this fertility even becomes a problem for Israel. For now, the Egyptian king, this pharaoh, says, ah, these people might rebel against me. They're not, they're not from here. They're not, they're not us. Egyptians were notorious in the ancient world for being xenophobic, um, for disliking foreigners for various kinds of reasons. Whether that was actually true or just a kind of stereotype of the ancient world, I'm not totally sure. I mean, you could go back and do that kind of research. But this idea that they would enslave foreign people is something that we know from even Egyptian history itself. I mean, Egyptian tomb paintings and wall art has examples of people being enslaved, even people doing things like making bricks and and, and people coming down to Egypt in times of famine. So we know that this type of thing historically happened. And it happened, by the way, not just in one historical period, but in many different historical periods. Throughout a long time, Egypt did this kind of thing. 
And it's not long before this slavery turns into not just mere a working arrangement, but not merely that, but something very pernicious, like slavery has always been for people who are enslaved. It turns into brutality, it turns into murder. And now Israel, the Hebrews, are in a very, very bad position, where even the Egyptians are trying to kill their male children, throwing them out, okay? This motif of the threat of, of the male children is one that's gonna come up much later in the Bible too. You're gonna notice this about the Bible, okay? Just have your eyes open for this kind of thing. The Bible speaks often in echoes. A word or an event goes out and then it kind of ripples out through time. Something that happened before happens again. So this idea of a special child being born, in this case it's gonna be Moses, right? We're gonna see that for this week as you read. I don't expect that you would know any of this yet before you've read, but I'm preparing you for the reading by saying there's a main character named Moses, okay? He's a special child and there's a threat he has to go into this special little basket that his mom makes for him and be saved that way. And there's an attempt by an unjust ruler to kill all of the male children in order to get rid of maybe uh, people like Moses. That's a story like that will come up again in, in, the, in the New Testament, in the specifically Christian part of the Bible, namely relating to the baby Jesus. That there's a threat to kill all the male children and this baby survives by going down to Egypt. You know? So even the connection with Egypt um, is clear in that echo as well. So you gotta watch for things like that, okay. Here's a detail that I wanna point out that I think is so fun. It's so, it's so Bible, so Bible-ish to do, to do it this way. This is in Exodus chapter one. If you have a Bible, you can turn there or you can just listen. Exodus 1.8, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Joseph's not the vice president anymore. He's long dead. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So he offers this um, proclamation that they have to kill. Kill the baby boys. 115. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that a baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. The, midwi the, the midwives then end up actually lying to Pharaoh. He's like, what are you doing? And they're like, ah, we're trying to kill the boys. They just deliver babies too fast. So we get there and the boys alive and then suddenly who knows what they're doing. And so all of a sudden all these boys are living, right? There's, there's a little detail though that you might miss here that I think is really fascinating for the, the way that the Bible often speaks and it's the fact that these two Hebrew midwives, just two women in the community, Shifra and Pua, we're told their names are, are actually given names. They're named characters. But the most powerful figure in the story so far, this character, Pharaoh, has no name. He's just called the new king who arises over Egypt. The Bible has no problem giving the names of kings all over the place. As you're going to see this as you read. A king here, a king there, some weird foreign place here, some weird foreign place there. A lot of details. So why not just name this king? Why not just say his name? It would even help for history, for this whole search. And I've asked you to talk about this this week in, in your group meetings a little bit. This whole question of like history. People have wanted to ask the question, is the Exodus story historical? Is it something that happened in history or is it a different kind of story, a different genre? Or is it a mix of things? One thing that would help to try to pin it down and to do the kind of research that you might want to do is to know in their own dating system, which doesn't always match up with our assumptions and so how do we know, 
what the heck is the name of the king? Egypt kept really good records of their kings, really, really good records. They were extremely literate and learned in society. And if they would just put the name down there, we'd be, you know, we could at least have that as a starting point and we could assess various things. But they don't name the king. Why not? Why not name the Pharaoh? Is it because the author didn't know the name? Maybe. Maybe the author was writing long after the events and didn't know. And maybe it wasn't important for some other reason. I wonder, though, if we could consider a move like that as a deliberate ideological move and something that takes us at, into the heart of motifs that we'll see later in the Bible. A deliberate ideological move to erase the name of the Pharaoh and to elevate the name of common people, even of individuals, who do God's will. The Bible is the only book, I think, from its ancient context, from the ancient Near Eastern world, that pays close attention to the lives of particular individual people who are not major leaders or kings. Which is weird, right? You'd think all kinds of ancient Near Eastern literature would just be writing all about all kinds of small people, doing all kinds of things and whatever. It'd be like a novel with all these details. Nope. The vast, vast, vast majority of official literature from the ancient Near Eastern world, from Mesopotamia, from Egypt, it's all about kings and heroes and battles, basically. That's what it is. And the Bible is about kings and battles and heroes too. But the Bible has this weird kind of obsession with mentioning little people, with mentioning people like Shifra and Pua, who do this one ethical righteous act to save their people. And then they lie about it too, which raises kind of a fun question like, is lying okay to save people? And you know, philosophers and ethicists could go round and round about that. They do and it's approved of though. But we got their names. We get their names. The Bible is going to have an emphasis that other literature of its time period did not have on individuals and on common people. And that's really strange. It might not strike you as strange, oh reader. Maybe some of you have read the Bible several times before and you're like, how is that strange? It's not strange. It would be strange if you went back and just spent like half of your life now reading like ancient Near Eastern literature, reading Mesopotamian chronicles and stories and myths. And you would see that this is a very strange thing to be mentioning common people like Shifra and Pua doing heroic things and being elevated by having their names mentioned. The Pharaoh though, he's a nobody. And that is a theme that's going to unfold in the story as well. Pharaoh will be shown to be a nobody, a no God, a nothing as a competitor to Israel's God. Okay. So you've got that. Now, moving ahead in my whirlwind tour of the book of Exodus, you're going to read a story in Exodus chapter 3 in which Moses, this baby who is saved and who lives, he grows up in the Egyptian court, but then he has to leave Egypt and he wanders around the desert. Turns out, though, he's one of these Hebrew people. He never quite fit in with the Egyptians. And he's wandering out in the desert. He's hanging out with his father-in-law. I guess he meets a wife out there. This is another motif even from Genesis where you go out into the wilderness, you run away, and you meet your wife at a well somewhere, a watering hole. Some advice there. I don't know how that could be followed exactly today, but think about it. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, the mountain of God? Wait, God has a mountain? Where did God get a mountain? Horeb, the mountain of God. And, and he's a shepherd too. Speaking of these echoes I mentioned, this idea of leaders being shepherds is going to be a big deal. Remember Jacob was a shepherd. He had goat flocks and things like that back in Genesis. So he's a shepherd and he's just kind of wandering around and he just ends up maybe magnetically at God's mountain. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. 
Moses saw that, the fl- that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, hmm, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Remember back in that famous chapter in Genesis, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with this echoes idea now. Back in Genesis 22, Sometime later, God went to Abraham and said, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. This pattern of being called out by name and responding, here I am. The exact same pattern here with with Moses. Moses shows curiosity. He sees that the bush is not burned up and he's like, "Um, I'm gonna go look. He's being drawn little by little. God draws him with the sign, but Moses himself shows the kind of curiosity to go inquire. Maybe it's a model for us, who knows, to examine and to learn and to look at things that are strange in our world and find God in them, which Moses does here in the story. And God calls out from the burning bush and says, I have heard the cry of my people Israel and I want you to go save them. Very famous moment in the Bible. So when you get to Exodus 3, slow down and really read carefully. And Moses is like, hold up. I don't know who you are exactly. Could you tell me who you are? Could you tell me your name? And God is a little bit cagey. He doesn't really tell him a name right off the bat. He says, well, you know, First, um, why don't you tell them, this is Exodus 3.14, tell them I am who I am. (laughs) What a great response. Why not just tell them the name? Then later he says, okay, fine, I will tell you the name. And then he says another word. And then he, he says yet another name after that. So it's like this threefold naming kind of thing. Patterns of threes and God's identity in terms of threeness is important in Christian theology. Not, not exactly from a passage like this, okay? But as something that builds throughout scripture, Christians have gotten the idea that God is expressed not just in the singular, although God is one, but that God is somehow expressed in terms of the number three. Not in terms of the number of beings, like Christians worship three gods, but in terms of some other thing, something about God's own essence has some kind of multiplicity, some threeness about it, right? So you see this kind of threefold naming theor- here, echoes that ripple out. Um, by the way, I wonder about this whole thing um, God saying in, in Exodus 3-7. I have indeed seen the misery of my people Egypt. I have heard them crying out, and so I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them. Um, it, it made me wonder as I was reading it over for today, like, would God not have rescued them if he didn't hear them crying out? You know, did it take their crying out? Later, God will say to Moses, I want you to go rescue them. And Moses is like, ah, I don't really want to. I don't think I'm the right person. And God's kind of mad. He's like, oh, fine. I'll, I'll bring your brother, I'll bring this guy Aaron and he'll go do it. So it's like, would God have just gone with Moses at first if he hadn't been mad about it? Would, you know, is God changing his mind in process? During our panel last week, someone had asked this and we didn't get to it, but it's a super fascinating question. Does, does the biblical God change his mind? Back to that abstract question, what should a God be like? I think a lot of us, probably just in the contemporary American Western context, probably have an idea about God, an abstract idea, a philosophical idea, that a God should not change his mind. That God should just be like static. That changing your mind would be a flaw and in the abstract vision of God, God is perfect and perfect beings don't ever change. There's a lot, there's so much that you could unpack here, right? I mean, in some ways, this vision of a deity that is static, immobile, emotionless, changeless, all these kinds of high-flown terms, really reminds me more of, of, of a deity sketched out by a philosopher named Plato. I'll write the name Plato up here, just to 
feel like a professor, like I'm writing things on the board. Plato has a, a dialogue called the Timaeus. You can read this if you have the collected works of Plato in your spare time. And in the Timaeus, the author there says, hey, let's, let's just pretend, let's invent a God. What should a God be like? And really, the author does this. So says a God should be perfect. A God should be static. A God should be immovable. A God should never change. In other writings, you know, it's the idea that a God should not have emotions because it's not perfect. If you have emotions, if you're sad one minute and you're happy another, or if you even get angry, if I say I got angry, that must mean I wasn't angry before, right? And I got angry. Presumably, I won't be angry forever. That's change. I guess I'd just ask you, uh, partly as an open question, and I'll provide a, a, you know, a little nudge in a direction here, as readers of the Bible now, even if you've never read it before, as you read Genesis, was your sense that the God there was a God that never changed? A God that had no emotions? I mean, you couldn't be blamed if you read Genesis and Exodus and you thought, this is definitely a God who changes his mind. Definitely a God who has that freedom. Definitely a God who feels emotions. Can get angry, can be happy, can be satisfied, less than satisfied. In Genesis chapter 6, before he flooded the earth, God had said, I regret that I made humans on the earth. The word regret, uh, uh, regret there in Hebrew, some more Hebrew for the day, is our Hebrew section of the board, is this word, nicham. Do you want to say it? Nicham. Nicham means, in Hebrew, regret. <laughs> okay? And it's used of humans and of God a couple of times. Some translators, though, when you get to regret for God, it just feels weird, right? Like, do you want to say that God regrets something? Doesn't regret, I mean, if, think about things that you might regret in your life, things that you regretted that you said or did. Would it not be the case that if you had a kind of like a do-over, you'd do it differently? I know it's kind of cool to say like, no regrets, I wouldn't do anything differently. I mean, that's pretty stupid though, right? Like, we would all go back and do some things differently. You have God regretting that he even made humans on the earth so angry that he's willing to kill them. So, I mean, I pose it to you. I mean, what, what are we being presented with? And this is a big problem for, script, for readers of the Bible, something that we have to grapple with theologically. What kind of God do you get? Do you get the God that you get in the scripture? Or do you go with more elevated ideas from the history of philosophy or from the way that Christian philosophers have kind of unfolded this? Do you, do you get a God the way that you think God should, should be? Or do you get the God that you get? In scripture, Israel gets not a God of a philosopher, not a God of Plato, certainly not the God of the Timaeus. They get the God who comes and rescues them. It's a kind of theology of encounter, we might say, okay? And this God is really about encountering Israel, coming and having like this face-to-face -face meeting, as awkward as it might seem. What's it like then for ancient Israel to have a God? It's an awkward, dynamic, living experience. It raises a question that I think our panelists last Friday raised really well, at least in part. Can you save yourself spiritually by kind of like, I think Dr. Claire had put it this way, like you kind of, almost like you get this idea that I think what being a Christian would be, would be to just like kind of like force yourself somehow to believe something that's really hard to believe, like in your mind. Like, oh, I gotta believe this thing, but it's weird. I'm gonna believe it, I don't know. As opposed to like something that you do with your body with your emotions, in a community, as opposed to an encounter you would actually have with an actual God. This kind of God is kept at a very safe distance, you know? He's perfect, he's far away, maybe he's sitting on some ice planet on a throne 40 trillion light years away, unchanging, emotionless. That's a very safe idea. 
But Moses is like bantering with God. At one point, you're going to find this too. This is super weird. After God has this encounter and sends him to Egypt, God actually comes and tries to kill Moses. Didn't see that one coming. I thought you just commissioned him to go into Egypt to save the people. Now you're going to kill him for some, you know, maybe minor infraction or some ambiguous thing. Yeah, he's ready to kill. This is not safe. Not safe at all. This is not the God of the philosophers. Plato's, Plato's God of the Timaeus dialogue does not come down onto earth to kill people. Anybody, not even unrighteous people. I mean, why would you? Stay back on your ice planet. This God is like in the middle of a burning bush. He's hanging around with slaves in Egypt. Why does God even care about these people at all? He just does. Which leads to the question of, the, of what God then does to Egypt in order to get them out. How is God going to get these people out? Moses says, who are you? He says, I am what I am. Okay, we'll see. What, what are you going to do? Famously, God goes into Egypt and basically destroys their entire country, little by little, okay, in a series of plagues, 10 plagues, starting small with some, you know, insects and frogs and stuff that's just a nuisance, culminating in the death of every firstborn male child in Egypt by Exodus chapter 12. And by that point, the Pharaoh is ready to let them go. So you're going to read all about this. These are very famous stories, and you're in for a real treat of reading if you've never read this before, or even if you have. Raises some ethical questions, right? Like, really, does God have to really crush another nation like this just to save his nation? Is it really a zero-sum game? Why can't it be the case that God could just sort of like, ah, lift his people above the land and sort of whisk them away, you know? Be a, be a nice solution. Can't God just do that? He doesn't do it. In fact, there are some bizarre motifs. Like, at one point, God says to Moses, you know what? You're going to go there into Egypt, and you're going to ask Pharaoh to let the people go. But he's not going to do it. And in fact, to make sure that he doesn't do it, I am going to harden his heart. Kind of an odd biblical phrase. I'm going to make it so that he won't let them go so that I can punish him, so that I will show my wonders and my miracles over the land of Egypt and they will know that I'm God. Now, a morally, ethically sensitive reader, such as that I know you all are, I can see it in your eyes, okay? You might wonder why, how it is that God would punish somebody for an infraction that God had made sure the person would commit. You may, in fact, you might wonder if some, an effect like that could explode out into your own life. Are the wrongs that you do, has your heart been hardened? Does Pharaoh harden his own heart? Is Pharaoh just being punished by the hardening of the heart? It's not the reason for the punishment, but just yet another punishment on top of the other things. That would get you out of the dilemma. It still makes it seem very dramatic, though. Why doesn't God just punish him? Why go through this charade, you know? I don't know how to explain this to a perfect satisfaction, to a perfect moral satisfaction, but I will say this. I mean, I would think of it, I, 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 think, I think we need to think of it on Scripture's terms, on the terms of the book of Exodus itself, less unlike, you know, these ethical, moral terms of like what's right and what's justice and who gets what, although we can have that conversation too, but more like in terms of passion, more like in terms of emotion, right? And this takes us right into the heart of what Israel's God is like. Okay. Think of it this way. Um, maybe some of you are parents. I don't know if some of you are parents. Maybe a couple of you. I'm a, I'm a parent. I'm a father. Think, think if you were a parent, if your child was endangered by somebody who would harm your child in the sickest, worst ways that you could imagine. Think about your own parents. I, I can tell you, no matter how strained your relationship is with your parents, for the most part, your parents would do anything to protect you. Like they would go wild. They would go mad. They would go crazy. I'm afraid of the kinds of things I would do if I were put in the wrong kind of situation to protect my daughters. I would go to jail. 
you know, gladly, because this is how it is. Or you could think of it in terms of like a relationship too, people that are really close to you, someone that you were maybe dating or someone that you were married to. What would you do to protect people close to you? What would you do if you, f- if you felt, if you saw that they had been kidnapped or taken slave by somebody else? Thinking of it in these terms maybe then justifies God's actions, at least on emotional terms. It makes it emotionally relatable. Pharaoh, the false god, has imprisoned Israel in his own system. But God has said, wait, those aren't your people, those are my people. Therefore, I will ruin them, okay? Like, he's going to slash their tires and more, okay? This is just how he's reacting. So thought of on those, thinking of it that way helps me at least emotionally kind of get into the mood. Pharaoh is a no God. He's no God at all. And he's going to show that by devastating him. Now, killing their firstborn children, as he's going to do in in Exodus chapters 12 and 13, when we get to this thing called the Passover, and you'll read in the textbook and, and, and in the Bible about it, so I don't need to say too much about it yet, is pretty brutal. Pretty brutal. But, again, echoes. This idea of Passover is going to become a very important symbol later in the Bible. This idea that Israel will take blood and put blood on their doors and the angel of death who comes to kill Egypt's firstborn will pass over, get it, pass over, pass over the houses that have the blood on them. And this language of Passover and the language of a sacrificial animal and blood is going to become very important later in the Bible. So store it away as you read, okay? In fact, Here we get to some of the heart of the story as the way that Passover is even practiced by Jews today as a holiday, an important holiday in the Jewish ritual calendar. Passover is a day when Jews remember their exodus from Egypt. And Christians actually celebrate Passover in a way too through the crucifixion and and death and resurrection of Jesus. So we get a kind of holiday sort of enfolded into a Jewish holiday in a way. And by the time we get to the New Testament, you'll see some of this imagery. But at any rate, I want to talk about the Jewish celebration of Passover. When Jews celebrate Passover and, and they do the recitation of the God's great and mighty acts, there's a passage here in Exodus 12, Exodus 12 that's really fascinating. Um, God says to the people, obey these instructions. This is verse 24 of Exodus 12. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, so you're going to get out of Egypt, he promised you a land, you'll get it. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So there's a kind of a ritual pattern set up here that Israelites are to, are to celebrate year after year. But there's an awkward aspect here, which is like, what if you're living today in 2019? and you're celebrating this, how are you supposed to repeat to your children when they ask you, as the text says, why do we celebrate this? And you, you, and you have to say in the first person as part of the ritual, God has delivered me from Egypt. Notice the move there though. It's not God delivered my ancestors. This is part of the Jewish Passover Seder that's celebrated every year. God has delivered us. God has delivered me from Egypt. It's in the first person. And this is where we make another leap that's super important about the way that the Bible speaks for Christians. And, and all this like history stuff that we can talk about, and maybe we'll have some time here today to talk about history and genre, is super fascinating. I love it. I'm a biblical scholar and a historian. I love talking about history and genre and whether events happened and how we would know. But there's something really important here about this ritual recitation. This is what God did for me. It's not about them 
It's about me. It's not about them. It's about you. And if it's not about you, this story suggests, it doesn't matter. I mean, you could do all the kind of history games you want and defend the faith to the grave, but if God doesn't do something in your own life saving you, who cares, right? This is something that's very important about biblical faith and this idea of echoes that I've been developing here, just to start in a starter way, is that the echoes are about where the echo's going. It's about you now hearing. By the time Israel gets out, in chapter 14, I'm reading from chapter 14, verse 30, all kinds of things will have happened. Egypt is plundered. Israel's running away. They're walking through water that has been miraculously parted for them across the sea. Exodus 14, 29, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw that the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. That word there, saved, saved. Have you ever heard this word? Maybe even if you're not a Christian or if you don't do church a lot, people might ask this like, are you saved? Have you been saved by Jesus? That word here, saved, to our next Hebrew term here, is the word yasha, yasha, yasha. Saved, delivered. It's the word that becomes part of the, actually the, it becomes the, the verbal root in Hebrew of Jesus' name in the New Testament. His name is Yeshua or Yehoshua. This is the root of the word, to deliver or to save. And Yasha comes up, as it does here in this text, very often in, in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, in very specific contexts. Those contexts are contexts of royal and military deliverance, like warfare, like physically you are being delivered. You are getting out. And that's what Israel does. God yashas them. He saves them from Egypt by physically taking them out of the land and plundering the land of their enemies. Is it a brutal story to us? Yeah, but think of it on emotional and passionate terms of, 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 what, of the deal, the covenant, back to this word, berit, covenant, back to the covenant that God had promised. He said he was gonna give them this. He's not delivering yet. They're in the wrong land. He has to deliver. You gotta deliver on the promise if you're in a covenant, okay? L l let me flip the story a little bit, just satirically comically in a way, just to try to illustrate yasha and what this word seems to mean here in this context. Imagine this. So even if you've not read Exodus before, you're not familiar with the story, I just kind of told you the story up to this point. Um, imagine if, 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 if Moses, had come, Moses had gone away, he'd had his encounter at the burning bush, and he comes back down into Egypt. And the slaves are like, hey, that's that guy Moses. He used to be an Egyptian, but I think he's one of us. What's he doing here? Moses comes and he gathers the Israelites around. He says, slaves, come near me to listen to what God has said. They're like, God, who's God, what? He's like, oh, I met your God, I met our God in the wilderness, and God has sent me here in the midst of your slavery and oppression to give you a message, a word. And they come closer. What's, and they're, you know, they're wild with hope. He says, the Lord has declared that he wants to set you free. They're like, yes. The Lord has sent me to tell you to set you free in your heart. No, 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 just wait, just wait. Like, you'll, you're going to stay in slavery. Yes, we'll stay here. 
but it'll be like, we'll have meetings and we'll kind of get like transformed. You know what I mean? Like inside. So like you, you stay a slave. Well, I'm sorry. I, the way I set that up, it made it sound like we were going to leave slavery, but we're not. Um, instead, I want us to kind of be like, it'll be like, no, it could be like this. Like maybe we could think of it like God has come into our hearts. And then you stay here. You continue being a slave to the wrong God. And then if you die like that, maybe God will whisk you away to a nice place in like 70 years, okay? Hashtag bye. <laughs> he leaves, <laughs> right? That would be a very different story, right? Can you at least see how that would be a super different story? I don't mean to mock the idea that God would do as a Christian inner transformation in our lives. I mean, I treasure that as a person of faith. The idea that no matter what's happening around me, that there can be things that are happening inside of me, even maybe things that I can't discern or see where God is working in my life. I mean, if you don't believe that in a way as a Christian, it's kind of like you would just be stuck, you know, in whatever physical circumstance you're in with no hope for anything else. I guess God doesn't want to save me. But I do want you to notice, right, how different those two stories are. The story, the biblical story, where God actually comes and says, I'm taking you out. Yasha means you are getting out. You will no longer be slaves. And my little fictitious story where it's like, well, maybe we could have an inner transformation and believe a couple of things, and you don't get out, and you just remain a slave. There's something about the biblical vision of salvation, not only in the Old Testament, but I think also in the New Testament, where salvation means getting out where salvation means actually moving, actually doing something. You go somewhere. Salvation in the Bible means that God takes you somewhere. And it's not something you do yourself, but it's something that God does. And God does it for Israel here in this Exodus story. So this is the great story that I'm asking you to read this week. I'm only asking you to read the first half of it, and we'll get into the second half later. Now, before we end here, I just want to make a note about this history question. I'm going to ask you in your groups this week to talk a little bit about history. I've got a support video for you to just watch a little bit of if you, if you want to, um, which gets into this question a little bit. There's some readings about it. Did the Exodus story actually happen in history? You could even back up, by the way, and ask, what is history? What does history even mean? Is history just like the things that happened, like that you could catch on videotape or on your iPhone or something like that? Or is history, as some people have come to define it, a complex process of memory by which we socially and psychically create ourselves in a kind of fusion with some things that happened in the past, maybe with some basis, but also things that we more or less invent? I mean, that's a question we could ask of ourselves as humans. How much of you is, uh, is made of real memories and things that actually happened, and how much of it is actually the way your mind has processed what has happened transformed it and created a new kind of story. So even saying what history is, just a boots on the ground history, it's not even that easy to do. If you wanted to do the kind of research though that could take you deep into the story in terms of its historicity or not, you'd be in for a wild ride. You'd have to do a lot of reading and a lot of research. My view on this story basically is that yes, it does have an historical core, it has to I think. Because of Israel's long-standing memory and treasuring of this story on the one hand, but also because of what we know, even from Egyptian records, about there being slaves in Egypt, and about Israel claiming its status as a group outside the land to start. So there are many reasons we could get into, and there are complicated things we could discuss and read, and we could talk about archaeology, and we could talk about dates and years, and we'll do a little bit of this in the reading for this week. I just want to suggest that if you want to approach a question like history, you can't, if you want to do it in the enlightenment mode, in the classic scholarly sense, 
you would go in with no assumption either way, merely asking the question that I've asked you to ask, namely, what kind of genre is this text? What kind of text is this? And how would you even know? So as you read, think about that. Is this meant to be an historical text? What kind of details would make you think it was? What kind of details would make you think it wasn't? What kind of guidance could you get to get any traction on a question like that at all? We'll be able to talk about that and more as we go forward throughout the Old Testament. So I leave you with these things.